Seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, as you can tell, I have a little bit of a sore throat today. By the way, I feel great. It's just my throat. <laughs> By the way, that because of that, I won't be greeting you at, as you leave. Because if it turns into anything more, I don't want to pass it on to you. I don't want to be that. I don't want that to be your Christmas gift. <laughs> I was telling uh, Brendan. I said I'm just thankful that it's not communion today. I, I never like to be sick when it's communion, especially. You know, back in December of 1903, after many attempts, the Wright brothers were successful in getting their, quote, flying machine off the ground. Thrilled, they telegraphed this message to their sister, Catherine. And this is what they said. We have actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. She read it, and she was so excited, she ran down to the local newspaper editor and showed him the message. And he glanced at it and said this, Oh, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. Totally missing the fact that man had flown. You know, I think sometimes as we look at Christmas, we miss the main point, that the Lord Jesus Christ was born to take away and then to die so that we might have salvation, right? You know, I find that, even I find that, well, even last week as we did the Christmas program. Uh, by, by the way, you know, many of you were praying. Let, let, me, let me review this. I know Sola said a couple of things, but, you know, we were praying. These were the last five things we were praying for. Servant's attitude would be, we would be unified. By the way, do you think that happened? Yeah, I think so. A clear gospel presentation. I trust that. A love, for Christ, a love of Christ reflected, lives eternally impacted, and God exalted. I just say this, I believe all those were, I, I believe the Christmas program was a success from the eyes of God. Now again, we planted seeds, but you know what the interesting thing is? There were at least one or two that were frustrated. Um, because again, sometimes to a watching world, Christmas is about gifts and family and the warm fuzzies. But the reality is that uh, we are celebrating the birth of the king for the purpose of him going to the cross to die for our sins. And again, people don't like to hear that we are sinners. You know, that is good news. And, th and that is what we're going to be looking at today. Look at verses 8 to 14, especially verse 10. Notice it says, and I bring you good tidings. That's good news right there. In fact, that word is in which we get uh, the gospel. That's, that's the word for the gospel. I bring you the gospel. I bring you good tidings. I bring you good news. Again, not about a flight, <laughs> but about a Savior. About the person who's born for us and that would, that would bear our sin. He'd become our substitute and therefore be able to forgive us and rescue us from the wrath and judgment of God. Is that good news? How can anybody have a good Christmas without understanding that good news? Well, because they don't understand that they are damned. Again, he has freed us from the penalty of death and hell. He is transforming us. That's good news. And someday we'll be with him in glory. It's all good news. You know, I just want to break this apart. And it's all around this theme, good news, good tidings. And if you haven't underlined it, I would underline whatever, however your version says, your good tidings, because that he's referring to the gospel. That's the word for the gospel. Well, let's look at 
some elements of the good news. The first of all is the proclamation of good news. Proclamation, verse 8. says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields. Lowly shepherds. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. You know, it's... I thought about this. This is, in one sense, an unlikely audience. I mean, shepherds? Actually, shepherds would be the last group that I would have thought that, they would, that this angel would have gone to. You know, if you were a PR firm trying to announce a spectacular event, you wouldn't have gone to a bunch of shepherds out in some field out in the dark. I mean, think about all the people that they could have gone to. The religious elite. Why not the high priest? Why not the priest? Why didn't, why didn't this angel go to the priest? Or maybe some leading teachers in Israel. Or how about the Sadducees, the priestly aristocracy? I mean, they had so many options, this guy. This angel had so many options. Who could have gone to? Or maybe the religious fundamentalists of the day, we call them Pharisees, very meticulous, always looking up. By the way, they should have surely known that if, it, if the, the birth was going to happen, it was Bethlehem. I mean, if you think about it, it's so odd. He went to shepherds. Or of all people, he should have gone to Caesar Augustus, the emperor, the big man, right? He, was, he considered himself God. You would have thought that this angel of the Lord would have gone to Caesar Augustus. Nope, the message of the birth of God's son went to the most unlikely group, a bunch of shepherds, lowly shepherds. By the way, let me reverse that. I said it's unlikely because many people have said over the years, well, that's an unlikely group, but actually it's not so unlikely. Because if you think about the mission of Christ, in fact, if you went back, and you don't have to turn there, but back to 700 years into Isaiah 61, this is what it says, and this is referring to the Messiah's mission. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's Father to the Son. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings. Now catch who he's... This is who Christ came to. He preached good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to to those who are bound. Christ said of himself, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, the lowly. That's all I'm trying to get at. Christ's mission was to the lowly, to the humble, to the hurting, to those in need. To those, actually, everyone is in need, but to those who recognize their need. It's actually really not unlikely that, that this angel of the Lord came to shepherds. Let, let me give you a couple other thoughts on this. Why did the angel go to the shepherds? Why did they go first? By the way, it's, it's even like the resurrection. Where did, where did Christ appear? Who did Christ appear to first? Was it the elite at his resurrection? Was it to the powerful, to the mighty, to the rich, to a woman? And I don't mean that derogatorily, but back then, <laughs> did it sound like that? Should I say it like this? To a woman. No, back in then, that's exactly how they would have thought of it. That's what I'm trying to say. No, God does things out of character for what we think, right? Well, it's, but, but wait a second, it's really not that unnatural, unlikely that he would appear to a bunch of shepherds. First of all, for this reason, because of their prepared hearts. 
prepared hearts. Again, he didn't go to the proud and prestigious. By the way, you'll find at the end of this thought that they went out and proclaimed the truth, which it would have gotten back to the Pharisees, and those Pharisees didn't have enough oomph to go six miles down the road to see if it was true. Their hearts weren't prepared. But apparently these shepherds' hearts were. You know, the scripture says this, God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. By the way, that is always true. That is true both to the saved and unsaved. If a unsaved person, if their hearts have been warmed and God is working and their hearts are being humbled, the word will mean and, and, and be understood by them. But if they reject and reject, then God re- resists. God rejects. By the way, that's the same with us too. Uh, are you proud today? Or are you a humble man? Or are you a humble woman? Are you a humble teen? Because God goes and opens the heart and, and, and even explains more to those who are truly thirsty, to those who truly are teachable, to the humble. In other words, I find in my own life, both experientially and I can prove it biblically, that as I am humble, God teaches me. And things in the Word become open. But if I become proud and arrogant and stiff-necked, especially towards sin, it's like the Bible, clo- and I'm a Christian, closes down. Are you humble? I believe these guys were humble. You know, the shepherds back in that day were near the bottom of the social ladder. I want you to get who these people are. They were usually uneducated and unskilled. They were often viewed at times as dishonest, unreliable, and unsavory in character. In fact, they couldn't even testify in court because they were considered that. Now, they're a bunch of liars. I mean, they really were on the, the low man on the totem pole, as it were, on the, on the ladder, social ladder. Because sheep needed carrying seven days a week, shepherds were unable to fulfill, excuse me, to fully meet with the man-made, and I want you to catch that, the man-made Sabbath regulations that the Pharisees had produced, okay? So, I mean, their actual vocation meant that they couldn't keep all the regulations that the Pharisees had set up to say, this is a spiritual man. The religious elite viewed them as being in continual violation of religious laws. I mean, they couldn't even keep the Sabbath. So they were looked upon as being ceremonially unclean. I mean, just think about this group. Now, now you're saying, boy, you're bringing a lot of reasons why they shouldn't have been the first ones to hear. But again, the good news went to this, these who were the commonest, (laughs) the most unappreciated in the Jewish society. But then we find that Paul tells us in Corinthians chapter 1, this is what Paul says, that the lowly are, primary, are the primary objects of God's saving plan. It's the lowly. In Corinthians 1.26 it says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Remember one guy saying, you know, it's great that it says not many. Not many. Not many are of the wise and the noble and the rich and the wealthy and the prestigious. Not many, but thankfully some. Some of you are maybe in that category. (laughs) But these are the ones that God does go to. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God goes to the weak. God goes to the humbled. 
That's why if you take a society, often it's the ones on the lower end that are receptive to the gospel. Those who have everything from the world's standpoint, I don't need God. Thankfully, God goes to the humble. And also, thankfully, that not many of the noble, but some... Sometimes you see a president get saved. Sometimes you'll see a person who has everything from a world standpoint get saved, but not often. Now, God goes to the lowly. And that's, I believe, this is the group right here. By the way, after they received the message of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, like in verse 11, look at what they do, verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass. In other words, they're excited. You can see their hearts have been prepared, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with what? Haste. And found Mary and Joseph in the babe lying in the manger. Look at verse 20. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that, had, that they had heard and seen as it was told them. I mean, they were excited. They were an excited bunch. Hey, we're going to go right now. We're going to seek him out. I mean, their hearts were prepared. That's why the angel came to them. Again, I, even as I looked at that, that convicts my heart. Am I that focused on learning more about Jesus Christ? Come with haste. Focus. I want to learn more about him. I need him. So that'd be the first thing. Their hearts were prepared. The second, I believe, is because of God's perspective on shepherds. You know, in Psalms 80, verse 1, God the Father is called, quote, the shepherd of Israel. How about Psalms 23? Most of us know that. The Lord is my... See, in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a shepherd. The one that gently takes the sheep and leads them and provides for them and protects them. It's not that unlikely that he would have gone to shepherds. He himself is a shepherd. Think of some of the great men in the Old Testament that were shepherds. Abraham. Moses. Who's the one that really rings out? David. Right? I mean, all these shepherds. And then Jesus Christ himself is referred to as shepherd in three types of ways. In John 10, he's referred to as the good shepherd. And, and I've always fascinated that word kalos, because that word good means intrinsically good. Okay? In other words, there are sometimes we look good, but we're not good. Some of you are smiling right now. Maybe you're really not good, though. I mean, you might have just had a fight and, you know, you got to the church driveway and say, all right, we're going to have to pick this up later on, you know. But, but uh, you know, we walk in and, hey, praise the Lord, it's really great. <laughs> He's intrinsically good. He shepherds his sheep and he does it for his glory and our good and it's always intrinsically good. But, you know, there's a couple other places He's referred to as shepherd in First Peter, and then he, there he's talking about. He, he's ref, Peter is talking to under shepherds, which are the elders, leaders in the church. But he says, "But you have a chief shepherd, and and it's uh, arch uh, shepherd, arch like you know where we're, well Roman Catholic Church we get archbishop. Well, but Christ is called the arch shepherd. Okay, the chief." The, by the way, that's how you always have to think of the church. You know, you, you have some shepherds that shepherd here, but we are always un considered under-shepherds. We always have to give an account to the chief shepherd. We're hoping to 
finish strong because we want the chief shepherd to say, well done. And then Jesus Christ in Hebrews 13 is called the great shepherd. It's Megas. Mega. He's the mega shepherd. <laughs> the great All right, so we have examples of Abraham and Moses. We have examples of God the Father being called the, you know, the shepherd of Israel and Jesus Christ himself is called the shepherd. That's God's perspective of shepherds. See, the society looked down upon him. God had a high view of of shepherds. And then finally, Christ's mission. Bethlehem was just six miles from the temple in Jerusalem. That's all. It wasn't that far. Most likely, these were no ordinary shepherds. They were no doubt, quote, temple shepherds. Now, what do you mean? In other words, these were not ordinary shepherds. These were not ordinary sheep. These were being raised for the morning and evening sacrifice. I found it interesting. Again, in order for the morning and evening sacrifice to continue, the priests in Jerusalem had their own shepherds, had their own flock. These these sheep would be going off to slaughter. See, it wasn't just for eating. This was part of the... These would be sheep that were used in the temple. Not only that, but some of these sheep that the shepherds were watching would ultimately go for Passover in the spring. So again, if you put all that together, I think their hearts were prepared. God's perspective of shepherds and Christ's mission, you'd say, well, no, it's not unlikely that the angel of the Lord would appear to a shepherd, to shepherds. It would make sense. Again, Jesus Christ himself is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I just find that very interesting, that that they came to shepherds. Well, let's look at the next thing, verse 9. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, the glory revealed. I think we need a little bit of history at the moment. In Exodus chapter 40, we read of the finishing of the tabernacle. Okay, Now, now catch this. The place of worship for Israel. And it says in verse 34 of Exodus 40, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, can you imagine this? You have this group of people called the Israelites. And the tabernacle is finished. And all of a sudden you see the glory of the Lord take up residence. It just gives me the, ooh, God is with us. I mean, that's what the Israelites would have said. God is with, with us. And he established worship among men. There was a form, there were priests, but God is here. And then when the temple was uh, built, the glory went to the temple, the, the ark, the holy of holies. God is with us. It wasn't very long, however, until Israel, through idolatry, turned against God. And you read in Ezekiel, and if some other time do this, Ezekiel 8 to 10, because there it shows that the glory of God, again, had come to the tabernacle, had come to the temple, but because of their idolatry and sin, the glory of the Lord was going to leave Israel. There was going to be a dark time in Israel. In fact, Heinzen wrote this. In the early days of the Babylonian invasion, again, this is during the time of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel testified that God's glory still resided in the temple. Why? Because God is patient. And even though you're idolaters, God gave them almost like, as it were, a third, fourth chance. Are you going to follow me? But Ezekiel also noted that the pagan idols that had been placed in the temple 
precincts and the pagan practices that were tolerated there. And the people of Israel had violated their covenant. So what does God's glory do? This is what he does. Gradually, reluctantly, but decisively, God's glory withdrew from the Ark of the Covenant. And the thing is, if you read, if you read Ezekiel carefully, you see he does it in stages. In other words, the glory goes from the Holy of Holies, the Ark, to outside the door, to outside the temple, to actually on the Mount of Olives. And as it were, the priests then are watching and the glory finally leaves. The Shekinah is gone. From that point on, it was dark in the Holy of Holies. The glory was gone. That's where we get the word Ichabod. The glory is gone. Oh yes, they still did the, the uh, sacrifices. Day of Atonement still came. In fact, it probably was like this. The the, whole, the, the high priest probably went in, made the sacrifice, Day of Atonement, walked out, probably didn't have the heart to tell the people, God's not there. It's dead religion. Ichabod. The glory's departed. And think about that. Hopeless. Everything was around the temple, but the temple was just empty. All seemed hopeless in Israel until that dark night outside the hills of Bethlehem when the angel announced the birth of Messiah and the angelic messenger was surrounded by the Shekinah glory, the glory of God himself. Can you see that? Hundreds of years. All of a sudden, he's back. He's finally returned. God has come to his people again and the hills were ablaze. R.C. Sproul writes, The plains of Bethlehem became the theater for one of the most spectacular sound and light shows in human history. Again, this is no small event. The glory of the Lord signified that the presence of the Lord had come back. But this time, it had not come back to a tabernacle, had not come back to a temple, but this time it had come in human flesh in the Messiah. That's why when you read And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Don't just overrun that. That is huge. Hundreds of years the temple was in darkness. But now, out in the field, proclaiming to just common folk, God has returned. And they will find him ultimately in the manger. Now again, what was their initial response? Well, last part of verse 9, and they were greatly afraid. Let me tell you, they were terrified. That's, that's the word megasphobia. Megas, greatly. And they should be, right? All of a sudden, by the way, when I, I've heard you know, people say, well, the Lord's going to be coming back and every eye will see him. I, I don't think it's because we have TV. I think the glory on this earth will be so great, that's what you're going to see. I don't think you're going to need TV. It's going to be just blinding. By the way, that's how it's referred in Scripture. Isaiah saw God in a vision, and he pronounced what? A curse upon himself. Woe is me. It was blinding. Ezekiel, it says in Ezekiel 1, he fell on his face when he saw the glory of God. When Habakkuk saw the glory of God, in Habakkuk 3, it says this, when I heard... When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. 
rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. I mean, he was terrified. And you know what? I believe as we approach God's glory, I I hope we don't do it in a God's honor, God's praise, God being exalted, that we don't do it in a haphazard way. Now, do we see the physical glory? No. But as we, our spirits, are walking with God, there should be an awe, a holy awe. You know, when John saw the Shekinah glory of the ascended Christ in Revelation 1, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I mean, you can just see the awe many times as we're worshiping or as I'm praying and worshiping in my own. It's like, who, you know, it's almost like it, it, you know, it's not experiential, but it is. It's it's that you understand that he is holy and I am not and you are not, you know, and there should be this transformation that takes place in our spirits. I'm talking about sanctification in our worship. But again... They were terrified, greatly afraid. And I ask you are, you, are you in awe, even sometimes greatly afraid? I mean, you think of God's holiness, and then you think of your own sinfulness, and, and how you've treated God, and how you've treated your fellow Christian or fellow man. And there should be a, who, I'm undone, woe is me. Lord, please forgive me. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Sometimes we love evil. These men saw God's glory, and it, and it actually transformed them even right there. Look at the second one, though, the extent of the good news. The extent. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, because again, they're terrified, for behold, I bring you, notice the you, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. I bring something great to you. Don't be afraid. This is a time of praise. <laughs> This is a time of joy. Well, again, they they responded humanly. That word again, good tidings, is the word we get, good news, when we say the word gospel. That's what he's saying. I bring you good news. The angel came to preach the gospel, the good news, and terror was turned into good news. And by the way, that's how it is with us. The terror of God that we are sinners condemned before a holy God as we find out about Christ turns to good news because you mean I can have my sins forgiven? You mean I can have His righteousness? You mean I can be a child of God? You mean I can actually not, when I die, not that's the end of me, but I can be in heaven? Terror, I'm a sinner, becomes good news. He is the Savior. I trust that that's happened in your own life. That you were terrified by your sin and you ran to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, and now that's good. that terror has become good news, and that you've received the Savior, and that your sins are forgiven. Well, let, let, let me break this down a little bit farther, though, because he says, I, I bring to you good tidings, and this good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Now, who are the all people there? Actually, primarily, all people refers to the people of Israel. Israel had been waiting for a king. And this is an announcement that the king, the Messiah, has come. In fact, MacArthur said this, That night God was delivering and ratifying the new covenant in fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic promises to Israel. That's what they were announcing. It wasn't just a generic good news. 
It's that your Messiah has come. Your Messiah has come. And he knew the shepherds would have a general understanding of that covenant. That's why he went to them. See, the other ones, even the religious leaders, they may have known, but they would not have received. But these guys received it. That's who the good news is. To you, Israel, you've been waiting. 400 years of silence, he's come. 700 years of darkness, the glory. But let me bring that one step farther. Because though primarily it's referring to Jews, thankfully it's, it's referring to all of us. It encompasses not only Israel, but all people. And I think Simeon says, uh, even recognizes this. Remember eight days later, he, he, he uh, utters these prophetic words in Luke chapter 2. This is Simeon, Simeon speaking. For my eyes have seen your salvation, Lord, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, all peoples, and a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. See, he recognized, okay, this is the Messiah, but it's going to be bigger than just Israel. It's going to be to all people. It's going to be to the Gentiles too. See, I was going to say this word secondarily. All people refers to us, but I use the word thankfully. Isn't that, aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ came not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile? Because most of you are Gentiles. And therefore, if he didn't come for you, or the Gentiles, he didn't come for you. You'd be sitting in your sin. But thankfully, Jesus Christ came not just for his people, the Jews, but also for all of us. He was going to be the Jew who died for the world. Thankfully, John 3.16 is absolutely true for all people, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes, whoever, Jew or Gentile, should not perish, should not be damned, but have everlasting life. So again, the good news is that God chose to be gracious and send a Savior to all of humanity. The Savior man, the God man, became the substitute for sinners to all people. I mean, that's, what we, that's why we are so excited about uh, Christmas. Oh, yes, I, I do get excited about a lot of things at Christmas time. I get to see people I haven't seen for a while. I do like a tree. It's kind of fun at night, and we sit around and have a few treats, gain a few pounds. You know, it's all fun. Then you, we go on our you know, resolutions as of January 1st. Those are all fun. We watch, I love the Christmas Carol. I love that. And what is the one that's um, Jimmy Stewart? What's that one called? Yeah, Wonderful Life. Yeah, that's, I haven't seen that. I, I don't watch that often because it, I, I'm a very emotional person. It just gets me really, you know, going. And I mean that seriously. It's like, uh, you know, tears flow and stuff. Yeah. I know you don't think that of me, but that's how I, I don't like watching emotional movies like that. I'm going to watch it this because I love that, you know. But the point is, is this. What is the point? Those are all a lot of great traditions, and they're good. They're not bad. But let's remember, Jesus Christ, God-man, came to be the substitute sacrifice for sinners on the cross. That's the good news. You know, Isaiah, 700 years earlier, and Isaiah, again, 60, said, verse 3, I didn't read this, the Gentiles, could, the Gentiles will come to your light. So even Isaiah, way 700 years earlier, had recognized the Gentiles were going to be part of the plan. In fact, Isaiah 49, 6 
I'll get, I'll, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. There again, just, you can, in other words, this idea that the Gentiles were going to be part of God's salvation didn't start when Christ came. It was already prophesied back 700 plus years ago. So again, the, the gospel would first of all go to the Jew, but then to the whole world. Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What? To the Jew? First, what? And also to the Greek. And thankfully, thank you, Lord. Also for us. So, they announce it. Now again, make sure you see, they said specifically in verse uh, 10, for behold, I bring you, not generically you, individually. The angel was saying specifically to you, I'm giving you this good news to the humblest and the lowest and the uneducated and those that the society would kick out and throw out. That's who God has chosen to give this good news to. I just love, in fact, you know, here I just, you know, even underline it or something. I bring to you because the good news is always to an individual. Yes, it's proclaimed to a group, but it's received by the individual. So again, that's the extent of the good news. It goes to the Jew, but it also ends up with the Greek, and we all can have the opportunity to receive Christ. Well, let's look at the identity of the good news. The identity, the person, who is he referring to? What is this good news? Is it because, you know, what is the good news? Verse 11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David. Now catch this. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the identity right there. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as he says that this is good news, this is not like, as one said, an oracle of judgment. No, this is a proclamation of joy to you. I'm, I'm giving it. This, you're the first ones to find out in the general population. Well, let's break this down. First of all, he's a Savior. You know what's interesting? Let me just say this. That when, he, when uh, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and Joseph, he said, you'll call his name Jesus. Here, Jesus is not re- referenced. Savior, Christ, Lord. To the parents, his name's going to be Jesus, which means salvation. Here, doesn't name him Jesus. He said, this is who he is. Savior, Christ, Lord. Again, he's the Savior. Savior means rescuer, deliverer. Now, to a Jewish person, immediately, that would be the one who is going to rescue them from the Roman rule. But again, it goes beyond that Savior as far as from sin. He's the Savior. And often in Scripture, he's referred to as a Savior. Not, not that often. I mean, don't make that the main title. But many times he's referred to Jesus as Savior. Jesus as Savior. But look at the next part. Jesus is not only the Savior, but the Christ. Christos, the anointed one. That's what it means, the anointed one, i.e. in Hebrew equivalent for the Messiah. Here, This is your Messiah. I've given you good news. The anointed one has come. The Savior is the Christ, the, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel that every Jew was waiting for. Every Jew was waiting for, but many of them would reject. You know, when you think of anointed, like you, you go back to the Old Testament and you think about anointed. They anointed certain types of people. They anointed the prophets, the priests, 
and the kings. That's who got anointed. And so when, when this angel is telling the shepherds, the Messiah, the anointed one has come, he's going to be referring to his, Christ's office. The fact that Christ is a prophet, that Christ is a priest, Christ is the king. So again, as you look at the word Christos, think of the anointed. What, did, what was Christ anointed for? Well, he was again anointed as the great prophet. Uh, Hebrews 1 says this, that God, before talked to the prophets to the people, but then he says this in verse 2, but has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed. So Hebrews says, listen, God spoke to men to talk to Israel and the world, but now he has appointed the supreme spokesman, his own son, to be the great prophet. Not only that, but Jesus was anointed to be our great high priest. You remember Second Timothy 2 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the great mediator. He is the one that is the great intercessor who alone can take sinners into the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God. It's through his blood. And now we can approach the Holy of Holies, what? With confidence. That's what Hebrews says. With boldness. You could never approach a throne with boldness in the Old Testament. Or throughout church history. But when Christ came, and he becomes our substitute, and he's our mediator, we can approach the throne of God with boldness because it's through his sacrifice. So he's the great high priest. You know, at his death, the veil that separated God and man, holy of holies, was rent. Again, that shows that he's the high priest. His death was satisfied God's judgment on our sin. And also the king. He is referred to in Revelation as the king of kings. So he is the anointed one. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. And if you think about the prophet, priest, and king, those offices say this, that he is sufficient to meet every one of our needs. You need truth? Go to him. You need righteousness? High priest, you go to him. You need to follow someone, go to him. He meets all our needs through his office of prophet, priest, and king. And then finally, Jesus is Lord. Now, as I said, Savior only appears a few times in reference to Christ, that he's our Savior. But when it comes to Lord, over and over, that he is Lord. And that word Lord, kurios, points to a few things. One is that he is deity, God, and that he is supremely authoritative in my life. You know, some people over the years, and I've, I've mentioned this a few times, will say this, well, you know, you receive Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. And, and that is a, a corruption of the gospel. Okay? That is a corruption of what the truth is of the gospel. One man wrote this, and I think it was very insightful and very profound of how important it is for us to recognize Jesus as Lord. He says, the tradition in some evangelical circles is to distinguish, to distinguish sharply between Jesus the Savior and Jesus the Lord. And even so suggest that conversion involves trusting him as Savior without necessarily surrendering to him as Lord. Now the motive, he writes, behind this teaching is good, namely to safeguard the truth of justification by faith alone and not to introduce works righteousness. The idea is this. If you receive him as Lord, maybe that's a work and you're adding to your salvation. That's why people don't say, well, no, you accept him as Savior but not Lord. 
He writes, Nevertheless, this position is biblically indefensible. Not only is Jesus our Lord and Savior, one and indivisible, but his lordship implies his salvation. This is what I want you to get. And actually announces, in other words, you can't have a Savior if he's not Lord. That is, his title Lord is a symbol of his victory over all the forces of evil which have been put under his feet. The very possibility of our, sa- of our salvation is due to this victory. It is precisely because he is Lord that he is able also to be Savior. There can be no salvation without Lordship. In fact, saying Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Savior is really synonymous. How can you have someone be a Savior if he's not Lord? If he's not Lord, then maybe the salvation he's produced is not good enough because there'll be another Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? No, no, Jesus Christ, even in this good news, this announcement, he's very specific, the angel. He is a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the end of Philippians. He comes to this earth. Does everyone recognize Jesus as Lord at this very moment? No. No, right? People go to hell not recognizing him as Lord. But Philippians says, someday every knee will bow. Okay, every knee will bow. So let's, let's put away this idea, well, no, you can receive Jesus as Savior, but we won't talk about Lordship yet. He is Lord. And if he's not Lord, he can't be the Savior. Find someone else. And finally, the purpose of the good news. Look at the purpose. And this will be, verse 12, the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. What? Lying in a manger? Yep, lying in a manger, just a wooden trough, feeding trough. Not wooden, stone. Excuse me. They always have wood and it's usually stone. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God! No, they weren't singing, actually. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. No, they really weren't singing. By the way, you see angels singing before the fall of man. You see angels singing in heaven. Actually, you don't see angels singing on earth. It's actually wrong to say the angels sang. I, don't, I believe they don't sing here because this is such a corrupted place. They were saying it. They weren't singing it. They were saying praises to God, glory to God in the highest. But notice what they were singing. That last uh, six, eight words there, seven words. Uh, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. The first, on earth, peace is the offer of peace. On earth, peace. By the way, this is not this type of peace. Uh, I'm in such peace. Yeah, man. No, it's not earthly experiential peace. It's not experiential. By the way, God does give peace. The peace of God in Philippians. If you're a Christian walking with him, he will give you the peace of God. He will give you experiential peace. You ever have the experiential peace? You're going through a trial and all of a sudden, man, it's just like, oh, God. It's, you know, as some would say, the God, God thing. God gave peace. But this is not what they're talking about. This is the peace not of God. This is the peace with God. Like Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The anger, the wrath, the judgment that God has for people can be done away with. We can have peace with God. And by the way, He brought us to Himself. Okay? He brought us to Himself. We have the peace with God. 
Because before I came to Jesus Christ, I had wrath over my head, even though I didn't feel it. You did too. But when you come to Christ, sins are taken away, righteousness is given, and you have peace with God. That was what this, uh, these angels, this angel was announcing. You can have peace. That's the offer on earth, peace. Because this whole earth is against God, but no, there are some who have peace with God. And then finally, the last, the source of peace. Goodwill towards men. I think the NIV said it this way. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. No, this peace is not earned. It's those that he has peace towards. In other words, it was God that provided the peace. Don't, some have uh, interpreted this way. Oh no, and as men walk with God, not before Christ, they will earn the peace. No, 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 no. This is God giving the peace. God providing the peace. He's the source of peace. God is a war God, but he's a peaceful God. He wants relationship, and he has provided that way through the, his son, Jesus Christ. See, this can be the source of peace. Calvin said this, the angels rather speak of it as a source and thus inform us that peace is a free gift and flows from the pure mercy of God. God is merciful. Isn't it great God is merciful? You know, I forget that sometimes. I will look at an ungodly sinner and somehow forget that God is in the business of being merciful and gracious to people. And sometimes I'll have this wicked thought. I'm not even going to tell him the gospel. He wouldn't believe it. What? I did God opened my eyes, right? God opened my eyes. Let's not discount anybody. If it, I mean, if, if he could save a Nebuchadnezzar, he can certainly save someone of low, right? Let's be careful who we think that this goodwill is towards. Well, look at how these shepherds respond. They take the message, the angel leaves, and again, verse 17, And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. I mean, they were going all over the place. Hey, this is the Savior. Hey, this is the Lord. Right here. This is the Messiah. I don't think you could stop them. And look at what they were doing. Verse 20, they, And they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. I mean, let's face it, the whole message has been on good news. What do you do with good news? Well, I take it home and I just think of it myself because it's really just about me. No, no, good news is proclaimed. <laughs> if you really believe it's good news, you proclaim it. And by the way, if you don't proclaim it, I've got to start questioning, and I believe God is too, if you really believe it's good news. If, if you only tell a select few that might receive it, and you kind of give it, stay away from everyone else that you might think won't receive the good news... Maybe we don't think it's as powerful as it is. Maybe we think somehow that we're trying to convince them rather than God opening the heart. All I'm trying to say is this. Let's be like the shepherds. If you've received the good news, it's because God worked in your heart and he humbled you and you received it, right? But what was the other side of the shepherds? They took that and they were just throwing it out. They weren't afraid of, oh, what what if I offend somebody? Do you think they even had that thought go through their mind? No. Hey, this is the Savior. Hey, this is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Prophet, the Priest, the King that we've been... Hey, this is the Lord. That's all I know. I don't know much. I just know what's been told me. That's all we have to do. Sometimes, you know, we don't witness. Why? Because, well, what if they ask a question? Well, you know what? Just tell them what you know, okay? 
We all have questions that can be asked of us that we say, well, I don't know what the answer to that is. Just tell them what you know. And if you're a believer, you know enough to share with them, right? This is the Savior. This is the Messiah, the Anointed One, sent by God. He is the Lord. That's enough. As you go and as you're with family and friends, I pray that God will open hearts and open opportunities and that we would be like those shepherds, just saying what we know. This is, I didn't know this before. Now, instead of us saying it's from an angel, though, what do we say? Right here. That's where I got it. From God's Word. That's even a more sure record, like Peter says. I trust that you're going to be out sharing the good news. Let's stand as we worship the King.